0: i didn't realize you have to buy all this crap i mean it's not crap i guess it's school supplies i guess that's a good thing (laughs) who needs an education what is this show about again
1: (laughs) (laughs) welcome to hello phd a podcast for scientists and the people who love them today on the show we propose some changes to the graduate mentor relationship that will make it slightly less dysfunctional stay with
0: us This is Hello, PhD, episode 55. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arniman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Hey, Josh. What's happening? Not much. Have you been watching any uh, Rio 2016? Zero. I have Seriously?
1: Zero. You know how I feel about sports ball. Yeah, that's true. I'm not surprised. Yeah, you shouldn't be surprised. I did read about Ryan Lochte, and I'm trying to figure out what happened there.
0: I think what happened was uh, whatever was in the hair dye. Have you seen his hair?
1: No, I haven't. Seen oh it. well, you haven't watched any, yeah. Okay, yeah. I heard people talk about it though. That's my that's my connection to the real world right now.
0: Yeah, I can't tell if if his friends directly played a joke on him by spiking his uh, shampoo, or if they played a joke on him by telling him it looked good after he did it himself. Is it a color? What is it? It's kind of white. Okay. It sort of looks like if your grandpa tried to have a hip hair style or something. Oh, I thought that was
1: a swim cap when you first pulled up that picture. No. Like I saw it from a distance and I thought it was a swim cap.
0: No, that's his, uh, that's his hair color. Neat. It's like bluish. I think, I think maybe he knew he wasn't going to win gold, so he just went for the silver. Oh, man. Wow. Dan, we got a good beer tonight. It's been hot lately. I don't know where our listeners are right now, but where we have been. It has been hot. I'm ready for fall. These over 90 degree days are wearing on me. So, are you going to cool things off here? I am. So, I feel like on days like today where the weather is hot, these aren't the days you want a stout or a porter or a high-gravity IPA. This is when you want something light, something refreshing, something crisp. So, we're going to have, I think, our first ever Pilsner on the show. Yeah, that has
1: to be the case because I usually forbid the drinking of pilsners in my presence, but okay. Let's try
0: it. Yeah. So this is one that I enjoyed. I mentioned last show that my wife's go-to beer on the beach was the watermelon. Yeah, it was tasty. Mine was this Oscar Blues Mama's Little Yella Pils. So this is a pilsner style from Oscar Blues in Brevard, North Carolina. We're not pouring this in a glass. We're going straight from the can. This is an ice cold can. What do you think? Yeah, I like it. It's actually got some flavor. I'm surprised. No, it's full of flavor. And I think this is what I've discovered recently, Dan. So you're probably like me. I always would avoid the Pilsner because when I think Pilsner, what do you think about?
1: I think of like a a nearly transparent, clear beer that's served in a super tall glass that tastes like water. (laughs) This has got way more
0: uh, hop and bitterness than I expected. No, I looked up the marketing speak for this one from Oscar Blue's. And one of the things they say is this is a small batch version of the beer that made Pilsen, Czech Republic, famous. So Pilsner originated from. Is that a the word town origin, Pilsen? Josh? Pilsen. Whoa. Yeah, maybe that could Pilsner be a future word. word. Unlike mass market Pilsners diluted with corn and rice, Mama's is built with 100% pale malt. German specialty malts and hops. See, I was going to ask that. I expected
1: a corn flavor. For some reason, I associate the, well, the like very yellow beers with a corn. That's what
0: we're used to with all these American style. We, gotta, we have corn you got to put some corn in there but yeah. this is uh this is legit pilsner so I,
1: I do have one last question about the name of the beer is Sure, it mama's little yellow pills like does mama have a drug problem that we <laughs> should be talking to her about <laughs> she's addicted to Nuprin or something that well, could be i don't know what's the yellow pills i'm New, you remember you remember the ads little yellow different no? i don't remember okay. that
0: dan back to school is upon us which Well, actually, for me, my daughter started kindergarten, so I'm in the back-to-school. Back-to-school used to be
1: the worst time of year when you're a kid in school for parents. Like,
0: I didn't realize you have to buy all this crap. I mean, it's not crap. I guess it's school supplies. (laughs) I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs an education? What is this show about again? (laughs) Hello, kindergarten. You know, I was thinking all the shop. I was on Amazon doing all this back-to-school shopping, and I'm sure they or a cash cow right now. Oh, they know exactly
1: what you need before you ask, I'm sure.
0: Uh, But, you know, I wanted to mention here at the top of the show, we usually throw this at the end of the show. We've had some really, we're really thankful for all the people who've been clicking through our Amazon banner on our website. And so if you're doing some Amazon shopping and you want to support Hello PhD, you can do so without actually giving us any money. So you can go to hellophd.com, make sure your ad blocker is off or you whitelist our site or you won't see this click on the Amazon link. It'll take you to Amazon. Do your shopping like normal. You'll pay the same price you normally would, but we get a little kickback that helps us with the cost of hosting the show.
1: And on that note, can I bring you some feedback on last week's or two weeks ago's show? Please do. This was about the five-year PhD, I guess. Yeah, you know, I I love, uh, you know, we consider this really a conversation with everybody out there and having these two-week... Uh, episodes has given us more time to get feedback, which I
0: think is fantastic. So last week we talked about the the five-year PhD. And I have to say, I kind of braced myself for pushback because I feel like this was kind of a controversial stance to take.
1: Yeah, I'm going to filter out all the people who, uh, you know, wished you harm, but I'm going to just read a couple that were more constructive
0: grad students should stay there for eight years like i did yeah exactly all right what do we
1: what did we get back so ross had some some good feedback he had two issues with the five-year phd what has he
0: been up to since friends
1: oh my gosh different <laughs> ross okay there's more than one so the first uh the first benefit he saw with the quote flexible format which is basically you finish whenever you're done is the upside of that which is you could work really hard get very lucky and be done in three years did you ever know anybody that did that josh I know like um, one, maybe two yeah, people. Yeah,
0: you know, and I mean, I work a lot with students now, so I kind of have a more widespread view of all the grad students. And it does happen, I would say, you know, out of 80 students. Yeah, there's probably two or three that, that do finish under five years.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's rare, but it does, you know, it's a motivation, I suppose. And maybe maybe it's not something to design an entire program around, but if you kept those people for five whole years, even though they had kind of finished everything. Um, You know, that's one downside. Um, The other is, you know, he thought it was really important to be able to maintain your funding in the job and and the financial support while you look for jobs. So if you basically get done in a weak job market, and you are just out because it's year five, which happens recently, right? You've got nowhere to go. But if if you can be more flexible about how much time you're there, maybe you get done a little bit early, but you stay on until you find a job. Or maybe it takes you an extra year. But You're not really in a hurry because there's no jobs available. Having that flexibility might help you out.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that's one thing, you know, maybe that that I wasn't clear about last week is I have nothing against people of their own decision staying longer. Like I said, you know, maybe you know, maybe you're in a situation like Ross brings up where your next job's not lined up and it, it is nice that you're not just booted out the door as soon as you're done. Uh, maybe you do need to finish or want to finish up some paper you're working on. I certainly think there should be built-in a mechanism to do that post-graduation. You know, I think the main thing I worry about is the situation that can happen far too often where someone's ready to go. And they're not allowed they yeah. to they can't go or else they leave empty-handed. And
1: Yeah, the, his solution that he's proposed is, uh, you know, a, a culture in the department that would finish everybody in five years but had like a firm cap, a cutoff date at six. So it's, it's kind of in line with what you're talking about, except instead of a definite five-year, it's, uh, you know, do your best to get out in five, and regardless, six is it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, a great compromise.
1: Yeah, so something to think about. I just wanted to read one more piece of feedback from Sherry.
0: And thanks, Ross, for, for writing in. We, yeah. we paraphrased a little bit what he said. A but lot, he had, yes. He had some great, great feedback, and so thanks for that.
1: Let me just uh, give a couple examples from what Sherry said, and, and the reason I want to read this is because she had some of the specific examples that I was after last week, where it's was like, what is it we want graduate students to do, and how will we train them to do it? So Sherry wrote, one of the best ways to limit the time to degree is to be clear as to the expectations of students from the first day. What do we want graduate students to know and to be able to do upon completion of the program? In a modern PhD, the program may want students to develop a certain standard of skills in speaking to a lay audience so that every student would need to complete a three-minute thesis. If the program also wants to make sure that students who graduate understand open science protocols, all students writing would include the data, links, etc., which would be taught and imparted as an expectation. So I really love that because it was specific examples of how you would instill these skills and test them.
0: What I think is cool about that is a lot of these things she mentions are specific skills that would be great for students coming out of their PhD to possess. But really the way we do it now, individuals may or may not build these skills. They may get this in their training. They may not. So Some do, some don't, and there's no I mean, really, standard. Yeah, I mean, if we think about it, like point. sort of the main currency or the main outcome for graduation is usually papers, right? There's a paper yeah, requirement, but there are all these other skills. And papers are important, right? I mean, they are symbolic of, of work accomplished, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say the, the whole range of skills that are important to be successful in science, many of those skills are not at all assessed or demonstrated in writing and publishing a paper. In some ways, what, what Sherry's pointing out is if we are talking about modernizing the PhD, not only are we talking about maybe taking away certain requirements, but maybe adding on certain requirements that, that really do fit into today's world skills that are important in the job market whether you're in academia or industry or somewhere else that we're really not assessing um, and by not assessing them we're probably not building into the training opportunities for individuals to get these skills
1: yep and and I think what she says is start with the end in mind figure out the the outcome and then we can design some some tests and some methods basically to get there so I think that's great that's great great feedback thanks sherry so we love hearing from you obviously we're we're excited to have the feedback. And uh, if you have some thoughts on the five-year PhD episode, please do write them in and we can read them on the show.
0: Second to that. All right. So let's move on to part two of the Modern PhD series. So this week, Dan, what I wanted to talk about is the very important advisor-student relationship. So you would agree with me, Dan, that maybe the most critical, and actually it's funny, the graduate students across the, at least our country, maybe the world, or they're starting grad school in these weeks. They are? Yeah, so all of our grad students started this week. Wow.
1: Uh, you better go back and listen to episodes, people.
0: <laughs> yeah. A so, lot in there. Yeah, we should, we should like put together, here's your survival guide. Are you starting grad school this week? Listen to these three. Yeah, things. exactly. But I had the opportunity to speak to this large group of graduate students on their first day of school. So I could talk about some of these things, but one of the things I said that I truly believe is probably the most important decision they will make this year as first-year graduate students is choosing a research advisor, choosing and a lab.
1: Choosing rotations or just like the final... The final decision oh, yeah. of the
0: lab they choose because, as you know, Dan, I mean, really, marriage. your it's whole marriage. experience really rises and falls on the functionality of that relationship.
1: Yeah, all the truly horrifying bad lab experiences seem to come down to that that advisor, that supposed to be mentor. So I mean we have the stories of people who spill radiation and that's sort of uh you know, tragic and comical at the same time, but the the places it can really go wrong are when you get a bad advisor.
0: Absolutely. And so You know, I've been brainstorming a little bit about ways we can, we're talking about modernizing the PhD. We're talking about really bringing it up to speed, making PhD training work the best it can work for the current day. And one of those is if that relationship is that critical, we should be really putting a lot of time and thought into nurturing that relationship and helping that relationship have the greatest chance for success as possible if everything really does rise and fall on that relationship.
1: So, what do you have for us? That's
0: not easy. <laughs> it's not you easy. You know,
1: I feel like we we come into graduate school, we read, I don't know if, if this still happens, but you either get a, go to the website or you get a list of people in your department and the research they're doing and whether or not they're taking students. And you sit down with it and you read the headline, are they working on a cool protein or is it Drosophila or whatever? And then you if that catches your interest, you read some of the description. You might jump down to the bottom to see if they've published in Nature recently, and then you're moving on to the next one. And so I feel like I'm choosing my research experience based on the science I think is cool, not so much
0: about the mentor. I think the dead horse we've certainly beaten at this point is that's not the necessarily the best way to do things, right? You want to do science that's cool, but you don't want to overlook red flags in the lab situation or the mentorship or lack thereof. But there's
1: any. no box off to the right-hand side that says, I'm going to be a micromanaging <laughs> beast that never lets you take a vacation and that's yells true. at you each day in the hallway. That's if, true. If
0: that were on there, I think it would help, but no, it, it's not. It, it would help. Although I would say if you're in a program, as many are, where you get to do rotations for six weeks, eight weeks, I mean, that's a really great opportunity. It's a six-week test drive before you buy the car. You know, that's pretty good. So, that's the honeymoon phase though. So so what do you true. have to
1: to repair the entire system? Because so, I think we're we're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna miss some of the warning signs that this person is a nightmare. So I think I think Dan, nurturing
0: this this mentor student relationship is a four-way street. Oh my gosh, that's not even possible. There would be so many collisions. <laughs> that's, maybe that's the problem. But I think there are four four different directions we have to approach this
1: is there like a yield
0: is it a roundabout what are we talking uh well let me get into this so i think i think nurturing the this relationship requires something from the student from the graduate student from the mentors themselves from the institution the environment in which the relationship is happening and from the funding level or from the the funding institutions who are interested in this. In this case, I'll be speaking mostly about the NIH or NSF. But I think there are ways that the relationship can be improved and nurtured from that level too. So I think all four of these levels, there are suggestions for ways we can improve these relationships. So it's
1: not not you, it's me, but it's actually all of us. It's all of us
0: together, right? And so the first thing is, let's just start with what you can do and your mentor can do. We'll start at the nucleus, right? So the first thing I want to point out is – there actually are resources out there for being the best mentor you can be and being the best mentee you can be. And and that is, this is the Wisconsin Mentor Training Corps. These guys were given, I think, like $2 million or something by the NIH to basically serve as this mentor training corps uh, for this thing called the National Research Mentoring Network. What's important is one of the things they've done is they've, Put together all of these resources and put a lot of time and thought into this whole thing we 're talking about into how to improve that relationship and they've made it all available on this website we'll link this in the show notes but there's a lot of good stuff here if if people use it and I think what's cool about so what's cool about this I spent some time on this website i've been on it. Off and on in the past, but as we were researching for this show, I really dug in a little bit and was impressed by what's there. They've divided these resources into four different categories depending on where in your mentoring relationship you are, where you're training. And so it, it goes anywhere from selection. So how do you decide who to enter into a mentoring relationship with in the first place. And that is, as a mentor,
1: I should choose these students coming up. Yeah, yeah. And what's
0: cool is uh, one of the the documents they've put together, they've put together is this assessing fit checklist. And what's cool about it is this checklist, you actually, I mean, I think in a perfect world, you and your potential mentor would both fill this out and look from both directions. Is this a good match, right? Is this
1: how cool it would be to have an adult conversation with another human being that was, that was like, hey, these are the things that are really important to me on this checklist, but it looks like they're not that important to you. So
0: good luck. Yeah, you know, hey, no, that's cool. Like, No hard feelings. Yeah, glad we avoided that. Yeah, and you know what, Dan? When I was reading about this, this checklist where, I mean, literally you and your potential mentor both answered this set of questions. They're really these honest questions. I kind of cringe a little bit at the thought of like, the openness of having this conversation up front with a potential mentor, somebody that you may not know very well. Yeah. But then I was like, well, why is that? Like this is a professional relationship, right? And we're just trying to suss out is this a good, good fit for us to continue in this professional way. Why does it feel so personal? Yeah. You know, it'd be a better
1: way. To start a, a long-term mentor-mentee <laughs> relationship to make sure that you couldn't talk to each other, that it was really <laughs> awkward, that uh, you know you felt embarrassed by even mentioning that you had goals for the lab or feelings about it. Yeah, seven better mi- just to like grin and bear it. That's a better relationship.
0: <laughs> seven miserable years saved me a 15-minute conversation.
1: I just launched eHarmony for <laughs> lab mentor-mentee relationships, so answer this Forty-two question checklist, and we'll, we'll match you with the perfect
0: mentor. <laughs> Maybe that's our future business plan. Yeah. We shouldn't talk about it on here. Somebody else might. That's true. No, Still it. unpatentable. So, so anyway, this this mentor core, though, they go beyond just the selection process because I know many of our listeners too. I mean, that ship has sailed, right? They've already they're already in a lab, and so they break it or down, they've taken on a student or they've taken on a student. We have faculty listeners too, so they go beyond selection. They talk about alignment. So once you're paired. How do you make sure you start off on the same page, right? So you're early in that that relationship. Then there's cultivation. How do you make sure you stay on the same page as you move forward so that goals are met? So, you know, the honeymoon phase, as you said, is over. And then last, and this is so important and often overlooked, closure. So once the goals are met, how do you decide how, do you decide how and if the relationship will proceed? Once it's time to go, how do you... Close that relationship yeah. down.
1: What you don't want to do is wake up at midnight and find your old PI digging through your garbage for like <laughs> mementos of you. That would be a bad, a you, bad
0: closure. You speak from personal experience. Uh, you I never know. Uh, so anyway, you know, I think this is really cool. But I would advise everybody out there, whether you are a mentor or a mentee, and I want to say too, this is a cool resource. Even if you're not a faculty member, but let's say you're a senior grad student or a postdoc who's doing some mentoring of an undergraduate or of a junior graduate student, or you're interested in being a mentor someday, to actually think about yourself,
1: I've talked about some of my undergrad uh, helpers on the show before, and I would, if I had a checklist, we would have been done on day one. <laughs> and hey, that might have been better. Oh, for Oh, I would love to help you, but my checklist says I can't. Sorry. <laughs>
0: So anyway, that's one thing then I think just it boils down to being more intentional about starting a mentor mentee relationship or or even as an individual who's part of that relationship, like realizing it is a relationship that needs to be nurtured and tended to from time to time. Yep.
1: So we can all get better at this. This is two of the two of the four parts. I suspect not everybody in those relationships is gonna be willing to improve their mentoring or menteeing. So what, what comes next? Because I might, as a student, be really excited about finding alignment and having a nice closure. But what if my PI isn't?
0: Right. So I think, I think that brings up a couple of other things. So, so first, actually, one more thing I want to say to all of the mentees out there. And that is, you know, make sure you have realistic expectations for what your primary research advisor can reasonably provide you. Right. And so what I mean is, yes, that relationship is probably the most important relationship you're training, but it's it may be unreasonable to expect that that person can provide all the mentorship that you need. Right. That
1: person may run the lab you work in, but may not be your mentor.
0: Yeah. You know, and they may be and maybe they are a great mentor for the nitty gritty of your research project, your specific research aims. But you know maybe your career that you're interested in they have very little knowledge of. Well, that's not the best person to be your career mentor, right? Or maybe you you know, maybe you have some some personal issues that really do impact your your training and your thoughts about your training. Maybe there's somebody else you need to seek out as a mentor for that aspect of how your personal life impacts your your training and on and on, right? So I think what I would like everybody out there to do um, and especially, this is even better if you're just starting grad school. But who, whoever you are, when you think about, don't just think about who's my mentor, but think who's my mentoring team, right? And you should be able to identify three, four, five people that you consider a mentor, meaning people out there that you trust to really help you navigate your training and your career, maybe in very different ways that together really give you this complete set of mentoring that, that you need to, to move on.
1: Now, would you formalize that? Because the the PI student relationship is codified in graduate school. This is the person that um, forms the the central part of your committee and you work with them day to day. Is there any way to, to kind of formalize the idea of multiple people are actually supporting me? I know we've talked about the director of graduate studies being a resource, but... What would you do there?
0: I think, I think you can. I think, I think it's sort of a fundamental, uh, a fundamental change of the way we think about mentorship in graduate school. And again, this goes along with modernizing the PhD, right? Moving beyond that one mentor model. So yeah, I think in some ways, let's say I'm interested in science writing. And I know that's what I want to do with my career. Well, maybe I don't have someone in my life that is knowledgeable about that career path. It's perfectly okay to seek out those mentors and even meet with people and be very upfront about, you know, I'm looking I'm looking toward building this mentorship team. And one of the key pieces for me is someone who can really give me a lot of advice and guidance in moving in this career direction. Would you be willing to do that? I think, yeah, you can be very upfront. You don't have to hide it from your PI. Like, I'm finding mentorship on the side. Well, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to talk to your PI, but you can. I mean, I think in some ways... You don't want them to dig in your garbage <laughs> and find out. Well, you know, I think in some ways it takes some pressure off of your, your PI. Because, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, you could think if you were the PI and you had a student in your tutelage who said, oh, Dr. Harneman, I really, you know, I really want to go on and be a consultant can you help me get there
1: i mean I, i my poor pi i came with a list of different things i wanted to do that had nothing to do with lab and there was the initial look of like horror and then concern and then covering that over with a okay well maybe i can introduce you to you know somebody who can help you but yeah, there's no way that one person could have every experience and know all of the different um, career paths that were open. Oh, absolutely, and and, and, a, and a good mentor I, you shouldn't expect that.
0: And a good mentor would admit that, right? When one of your mentees comes to you with a need that really you can't meet, to be very willing to say, "Well, I don't know the answer to this. I can't help you with this, but let me help you find somebody that can." So, so that's what I'm talking about. So, I guess the the second thing is just really seeking out multiple mentors and, and formulating that, forming that mentorship team. All right. So, so that's sort of moving past what the, the people involved in the relationship should do. But I think there are factors in the greater environment with which that relationship happens that also can, could contribute to making those relationships better. And the first is at the department or university level. Okay. And one of those, I, w- I was in a conference just yesterday, And there was a conversation about tenure, and there was this kind of higher-up person talking about how there needs to be changes to the way tenure works. And she used this really great analogy that was like, if you were dating, right, and you were going on a first date with someone, and you had sent them a photograph so that they would be able to pick you out in the restaurant, but you sent them a photograph from high school and you're 55 years old now.
1: Yeah. Have you seen my LinkedIn profile? I have a picture <laughs> up from
0: 1922. There's some faculty who are guilty of this. Yeah. Um, but no, in no way would that be useful for, for them in the current day. Cause things have changed so much, but that's kind of like how we do. Like we do tenure the same as we've always done tenure. Right. Um, We've done graduate training. We've done this sort of mentorship relationship in the same way we've always done it. So it.
1: Isn't, isn't that what tenure is, though? It's the, like, I behaved for this many years, and now I can do whatever I now want. Now it's one big yeah. party. This is this is dating and then the marriage. I can leave my socks where I want to leave my <laughs> socks because I have a piece of paper that says you have to stay with me. But it
0: doesn't mean people are happy
1: about That's it. That's true. That's right? very
0: true, yeah. Uh, so anyway, one of the things I thought about, and we we've covered this ground on the show before, but I think it fits here, and that is... I think it should be easier to switch labs if it's not working out easier in what way? Cause I think
1: there's nothing easy about switching labs, but, but what would you change that would make?
0: That's a good point. Maybe what I mean by easier is a more clear and defined path with less stigma.
1: Okay. I like the sound of that. We've, we've heard stories from people who made that change and it was successful. So we know it, it is a, a viable solution for some people. Um, but the stigma was very strong and it was a, a very hard path to take.
0: Yeah. And a lot of what made it a hard path. And this is what's funny to me. Cause I've, you know, we talked to Jessica, but I've talked to numerous people who've switched labs. Invariably they all look back and said, no, it was a great decision. It gave me a new lease on, on my scientific career. But one thing that none of them said was really an issue was, yeah, it took them a little extra time cause they had to start over in some respect. But the hardest part, the worst part was just that. It was sort of fear, trepidation of dealing with this stigma of trying to switch labs, feeling like damaged goods. And and that's not great. I think we should have a situation just like we were talking about before with the checklist where we can all be adults. We can all recognize these as professional relationships and and have a clear path forward if it's mutually not the best fit and and again this is not always like interpersonal issues right there can be lots of reasons why oh you know your interests and our interests my interests don't really align like we thought they would let's find somebody else where you'd be better off i mean that's a win-win for everybody so i think it would be great if in graduate training more broadly if there were just clearer mechanisms that were talked about out in the open of hey you know what three years in, let's reassess. And Yeah, there's so many
1: people that are that are feeling stuck there in a lab where they know they shouldn't be, but they don't even consider this an option because it's such a hard thing. And they might have a different uh, hopefulness if this were a very clear path that that was easy to take. Not, not so easy that everybody just switched labs. I don't think anybody would do that, do you?
0: I had this conversation about this with someone in the past, and they brought up, well, you know, if it was more clear and defined of how to switch labs, then you know students would just switch labs at the drop of a of a hat. And I don't think that's I don't true think so either. Uh, Nobody wants to start over no, on a project. No, not at all. So, so anyway, that's one thing that I would like to see more of. And then the last thing, Dan, this is at the funding agency level. So we'll just use NIH as an example because it's relevant for us in the biomedical world. And that is one of the reasons why I think a relationship between a student and a mentor can be strained has to do a little bit with mismatched needs, mismatched expectations that really are of no fault of each of the participants, right? So if I'm a faculty member, what do I need to do for my career?
1: Uh, You need to publish as many papers as you can in the highest level journals.
0: Yeah, and obtain... Funding. Money, money, money. And once I get that funding, I need to accomplish the things that I said I was going to do on the grant. But a lot of graduate students, at least in the sciences, are paid off of these research grants, right? So if I'm a faculty member and I have this multi year research grant for a million dollars, and I'm paying these two grad students on this research grant, I need these grad students to do X, Y, and Z on this research grant so that I can continue receiving funding, right? I need to publish the results from that grant and I need the results to go their way with that grant.
1: You know what you don't need them doing? Training to be better students or, or going into the career that they love or... Exactly,
0: yeah. right. That That is in opposition... Publish, publish, publish. Right, that is in opposition to the thing they're funded by, right, what what that needs them to do. So I think one suggestion I would have is we've mentioned these training grants. I know you're tired of me talking about these T32 training grants, right? But these training grants... And there are a number of them out there. A lot of institutions have these training grants. But they exist just to fund trainees, right? Grad students, postdocs. And the great thing about them is it offloads trainees, at least the ones who are on these grants, from just straight research grants to training grants, which then frees students up to actually make decisions that are actually best for their training, and they're also doing research. I mean, they need to do research, be productive, but it allows faculty to utilize that money to actually get that research done without needing the graduate student to just do the research. And I don't know if I'm saying this in a way that makes sense.
1: Yeah, you're you're separating the conflict of interests so that you are paying them to be trained And while they're being trained, they also happen to be accomplishing these other things you need to have done for your grant.
0: Exactly. And I I think what I'm getting at by saying this is what we need to not forget is that graduate school is still school and a graduate student is not just an employee. And the more grad students are funded on research grant dollars, they have to function more as employees than students. And that's not necessarily in the best interest Of the graduate student
1: yeah if you would like some research done hire some research faculty that's probably the way it should work
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and then the expectations are very clear there right as a technician as a research faculty member and in some contexts, even as a postdoc but the graduate what the graduate student is trying to accomplish and their relationship with the institution with the university the school they're in should be very different right and so I think what I'd like to see from a funding agency standpoint is if we're going to modernize graduate training, more dollars being funneled to these training grants so that a higher proportion of trainees are being funded to be trainees and not just employees.
1: That makes sense. So let me recap, see what I got out of this. We've got, the four way street, right? <laughs> the chicken- the street. Why did the treacherous four way street? Why did the chicken cross the four way street, Josh? <laughs> I, don't I don't either. <laughs> Terrible idea. We need a stoplight. Yeah, you've got the you've got the trainee, you've got the advisor or mentor, you've got the department and university that those people work in, and you've got the funding agency. And everybody plays a role in how that relationship works. Um, I think we've identified some of the ways that breaks down. We've got a few ideas for how to make it better. Um, I would love to hear from listeners who either have experience at one of these levels where either it went really bad or maybe it went really well. Maybe you had a great experience where your department was really encouraging about changing labs. I don't, maybe that exists somewhere. Um, please do write to us so that we can keep this conversation going with everybody listening.
0: Yeah. And it would be great to hear from people at different levels, right? From the grad students. From the mentors themselves. Yeah, would you
1: fill out a checklist with your mentee? Or would that be totally weird and you just wouldn't do it?
0: From Francis Collins, I mean. Friend of the show. <laughs> friend of the show. <laughs> we just say that, yeah. <laughs> Never heard of us. That's okay. All right, Dan, this has been a, a cool discussion of our part two of three for Modernizing the PhD. I'm excited. We will have our conclusion of Modernizing the PhD on our next show where we're going to talk about moving towards team science.
1: Team science. All right, Josh, would you like to talk about an etymology puzzle?
0: I would love to talk about an etymology puzzle.
1: The clue last week was, it looks like this limestone is oozing and dripping from the roof of the cave. Did you have a, an idea for this one?
0: I have a 50-50 shot of getting this right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know that it is stalactite or stalagmite. I'm going to guess... Do you remember which one is on the top? and which Well, I don't. On? That's why I'm having trouble here, right? I'm going to guess i going to stalactite. It is stalactite. Fantastic. Stalactite has a C in it.
1: That's how you remember it comes from the ceiling. Stalagmite grows from the ground. That's what I learned when I was in grade school or something. So uh, stalactite is, is just a, a hanging formation of, of lime, basically, from the roof of a cave. It comes from the Greek stalactos, meaning dripping, oozing, out in drops. Um, there, there's a earlier root from Proto-Indo-European, our favorite, that means seep, drip, or drop that word through German got translated into the word for to urinate. So mm. you see how these, this oozing, dripping kind of all comes together, doesn't it? That's gross. Yeah, Sorry, I, don't I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, I think it's pretty fascinating how the word for a limestone formation and I have, well, I have German qu- urination kind of come at the same
0: time. The question, so you said this is the German word Stalin? That's S-T-A-L-L-E-N. And that's right, Yep. Yeah is that where we get stall like uh in the restroom like a bathroom like stall in the bathroom stall because there's no way Stalin means to urinate
1: although every time i say there's no way and then it turns out you're right so i will i'll find out that's
0: what it is. want stall i thought
1: you were going to ask about joseph stalin <laughs> the the <laughs> well, russian yeah, that's the, why i
0: wanted to point out because i'm looking at the show notes that it is spelled S T A L L I N. so i thought i'll Jathen look it Stal. up and
1: you'll be right and i'll be mad fantastic okay well here's your clue for next week josh The first sheet I glued into my manuscript was this step-by-step description of how to repeat the experiment. I'll read the clue one more time. The first sheet I glued into my manuscript was this step-by-step description of how to repeat the experiment. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card.
0: All right, Dan. Well... This was a great discussion. Like we've said, we want to hear from you. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. You can contact us on the Facebook page, or you can actually leave a comment on the show notes page. That is correct. People do it. They love to read them. Those show notes are great. Dan, you write all those. They're fantastic. The best show notes I've read. You don't read show notes. I usually don't. But anyway, it's been a great show, Dan. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed this refreshing Pilsner from the can mama's little yellow pills yeah i've been eating handfuls of little yellow pills
1: too just to like keep up with the theme
0: maybe they just take water and they dilute little yellow pills that's not
1: a good idea all right judge we'll see you in two weeks see you in two weeks
0: every bone in my body hurt the doctor said nothing was broken he gave
1: me a different medicine it's in these little yellow pills new got rid of that pain Know what else? Works great on my tough headaches. Nuprin. It's not aspirin, not Tylenol. It's ibuprofen. Two Nuprin stop headaches better than extra strength Tylenol.
0: And Nuprin's gentler on my stomach than aspirin. Nuprin. Little. Yellow. Different. Better. It even works on my worst pain.